Hello, everybody, and welcome to Focal Point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. Uh, this is where we're going to be talking about something related to the field of diagnostic imaging. My name's Sam. I'm on hosting duties um, for this month, and I'm joined, um, as usual, by one of my colleagues in the IMV clinical team. So say hello, Laura. Hi, everyone. And this month, we have been taken over um, but by who and for what reason? <laughs> We're going to find out very shortly because it's the Vesco takeover. So I'm joined by two of our colleagues from Vesco. So we have Hannah Eastwood Yates. Say hello, Hannah. Hi. And we're also joined by Chris Mears. So say hello, Chris. Hello. Great. Thank you. So both work for Vesco. I think before we start, um, maybe let's have a quick bit on just for those who don't know who who Vesco is. So do you want to, to do that, Hannah? And then maybe you and Chris can just introduce your kind of parts in the business. Sure. Um, so Vesco, uh, we joined the IMV family last year. Uh, we predominantly do kind of um, endoscopy and um, then also laparoscopy as well. Um, and we also work, do lasers as well. So we are often known as the, the endoscopy side of the business, but we do have a little bit more as well. We have a service centre, dedicated service centre in the UK based in Southend, uh, where we have some great kind of trained technicians um, who are there to help repair and kind of keep, keep uh, maintaining um, uh, endoscopy. And we are uh, working, as I say, with practices. We've got an account manager team. Um, I myself am heading up the kind of Vesco centre, um, Vesco part of the business um, overall uh, and Chris who I will hand over to now is like one of our fantastic account managers based with looking at a kind of looking after practices down in the south. So okay very good um, so yeah I'm, I'm an account manager um, working for Hannah so it's our job really to visit practices speak to nurses clinical directors vets and all sorts of people to get them comfortable and confident with using endoscopy um, how to use it, how to look after it, how not to break it, and what amazing things that they can do with a with an endoscope at their disposal. Uh, amazing. That's it. This is great. Thanks, Chris and Hannah. So, I mean, I think that's a great place to start from what you, you said, Chris, is that sort of, I suppose, what we're going to do today is try and get some of that information that we want people to know about endoscopy. If, if you're if you're thinking about starting of using it or you wonder about how you're kind of making more of the equipment as well. And um, so to start off, I suppose, I suppose, well, well, what what can we use it for? I mean, there'll be a lot of things that people think about, but I'm sure there's some of those that they don't. So why don't we why don't we start there? What what are what are people using endoscopy for in practice now? Uh, I mean, on the small animal side, it's to it's to just have a quick look inside cats, dogs, noses, stomachs, throats. Goodness knows where else. Uh, it's it's quite a painless diagnostic tool to use. It's it's pretty non-invasive. Uh, and if there is anything in there inside the, the patient that shouldn't be there, we can use an endoscope, endoscope to get it out. That's that's pretty much it. Um, on on the equine side of things, uh, it's very much diagnostic for checking out horses to make sure that they're breathing okay and then their stomach's okay. But it's 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 quite varied. It fits in, endoscopy fits in really nicely with our kind of ultrasound and x-ray kind of side of the diagnostic imaging because it essentially gives you real life, real time, a look inside uh, what is actually going on. Um, obviously, we have to, with x-ray and ultrasound, make interpretations of like the images that we're seeing. But, you know, what you see is what you get with endoscopy, like you're looking straight at it. Um, and the way that you can use it exactly as kind of Chris says, 
not only do you then get to visualize normal and abnormal, you can then do certain things like you can take you can take away things that shouldn't be there so foreign bodies you know we have some we have a great um two uh, ronnie and reggie are our kind of um model dogs uh we're often rescuing peach stones and bits of rag and things out of them um but also taking biopsies with on the equine side you know lots of kind of um uh, bal washes um looking um at kind of different things so um there's a great range that you can do with your endoscope Funny enough, actually, we, as we often do, Chris, we kind of end up thinking more about the flexible side of things. But there are also rigid endos- endoscopes, even things like looking in ears and things like that. There's some great developments to be able to um, look in kind of um, ears, rabbit's mouths, things like that, and actually have instruments where you can actually do things with it as well. Um, so that's not to really be forgotten. It, it's such a day-to-day use that sometimes it gets overlooked for the more kind of like, GA in there kind of you know um as say rescuing that foreign body from the from the Jack Russell that's gone and eaten well in my case it was a rubber duck actually but anyway that's another another story for another day (laughs) so I mean you you mentioned like the flexible versus rigid scopes um what are the main sort of differences and advantages and disadvantages of of the two beyond the obvious one's flexible one's rigid I think for the rigid, it's more, it's, it's very much sort of sinus work, ear, nose and, and throat uh, and, and joints as well. Um, it's, it's a tiny little puncture that you need to use to get the scope in there, but it's it's predominantly for very, very small areas and, and shallow areas of the animal as well. Versus the flexible endoscopy, you can go a lot further in to the animal because they're traditionally longer than the rigid scopes. Are they quite similar sort of technology-wise and image quality? Um, I mean, you've got the rigid scopes, you, you tend to look through by eye, uh, but we can obviously add camera attachments to that to give you an HD video system. And again, a lot of the older style flexible endoscopes are also by eye, but the more modern stuff now is all HD video. Um, so it's, it's, it's very varied very varied but mainly the rigid stuff is is you use an eyepiece to look down but you can if you want to um but um the technology as well how it is has moved on it used to be used to be fiberscopes um so that is with the eyepieces looking down um and it you know clue is in the name it's it's a load of fibers but if those fibers break because obviously they're always kind of flexing think of a bit of like a bit a bit bit twine with all the different kind of um uh, fibers of that twine if one of those twines break, you get like a black dot in the image. So with the newer scopes, when they're using chips and things like this, you also have the added benefit that when you're looking down an eyepiece, only you as the, the that kind of one user can see what's going on. Whereas nowadays with technology, because it is, um, we can put it onto monitors, we can put it onto laptops, you can actually kind of, uh, kind of, wirelessly send some images on the wall so that is great for not only the rest the wider kind of vet team be able to see what's going on uh, but also actually can actually get more client engagement going on as well because they're they're seeing what you're seeing they get a greater understanding there's you know and that obviously has been shown to always improve kind of um uh, compliance when it comes to medication and treatment and things like that um uh, so yes a lot lot more engagement as well so that's another benefit of the technology You'll also see me and Chris kind of, um, we get kind of uh, the one big difference between the rigids and the flexibles as well is rigids often use um, 
uh, it's lots of little glass lenses in it. So you've got to be very careful that if you smash one, it, it, it's much easier to smash. Um, with the flexible scopes, um, it's you want to be careful of the, the tip, the tip of where it's going and um, not letting it smash on the floor, a bit like with an ultrasound probe. Um, we get a bit precious about that and a bit twitchy when we see one coming very close to inanimate objects. So the sort of, I guess like the care for both of them is quite different. We, we, we get asked a lot how robust the scopes are and, and the stock answer would be, well, how careful is the end user? Everything's robust if you look after it, but there's, there's a lot of ways that they can be damaged, but with rigid, mainly it's shock damage. So it just gets dropped a little bit or gets hit on a table or something like that. That's generally the main area of damage with flexes. It goes on and on and on with shock damage or leaks or blockages or there's, there's a lot more of a flexible endoscope that can go wrong. But again, if you're careful, you should be okay. <laughs> what, what's your top, should we say three, top, top three tips for looking after your flexible? Uh, clean it properly. Don't drop it. Um, and really follow the care and maintenance advice that we provide for you because it's all helpful. This sounds just like an, an ultrasound machine or an exam machine. Read it properly, don't drop it, do as you're told. There are so many parallels. The thing is, as well, the very nature of endoscopy is, you know, we're sticking it into things that have generally got kind of gunk and fluid and this, that, and the other. So unlike kind of x-ray and ultrasound, where it often says, well, predominantly stays outside of the body like that's why the cleaning is so important and that day-to-day management of it saves you so many kind of headaches later on by doing that kind of cleaning you know there's a reason like we have like we've got we've got guides like chris will happily come in like any of us will happily come in and show you how to clean it we've got videos and things it's such an important bit and it may be the boring bit of the actual imaging side of it we we get that but it is it it just it helps. It's just so in, important um, to kind of have a regular cleaning regime, and as kind of Chris also says, that that regular maintenance. Because um, also with the flexible scopes you're using, um, the, the hand pieces you're using is essentially pulling the scope left or right, up and down. Some can't do both. Some can only go one way, etc. Um, but that those pulling mechanisms you know over time with anything it, it wears out it will get a bit bit slack which is why like having it regularly serviced what that's one of the key things that our team kind of look at when they when when they come in to be kind of serviced amazing so if if somebody was is listening and they wanted to find out a bit more about the servicing or see the videos i can assume they'd probably just be able to go to the website for vesco to find those all on the website. Um, it's also kind of has links to um, uh, kind of your account managers uh, and um, kind of where to email and things for any kind of further info. But yeah, on the website is a great place to start. Good. And so, I mean, I think we, we talked a little bit about the, the scopes and the, the kind of the kind of care of them. Obviously, if we're we're using them in a lot of situations, we're going to be using the the kind of the channels to kind of introduce things or anything like that. Um, where do people get started in the world of that sort of accessories for scopes, kind of bi- biopsy, kind of gathering equipment or, or these other parts? What, what sort of tips do you have for people sort of starting with those those things? 
It would be with the channel instruments itself. I mean, biopsy forceps are a, are a fairly standard instrument that you would have with a scope, um, which is fairly self-explanatory if you need to take a load of samples. And really, in, on a foreign body kind of aspect, depending on what is stuck inside. So it, it would it would dictate which instrument you use. We've got graspers, we've got basket devices, and and, and all sorts of things that. You know, if you've got a stone or a pebble or a walnut stuck inside an animal, you use a certain device like a, a snare or a basket. But if they swallow a shoelace or a, or a bit of straw or something like that, you'll use a, a grasping instrument. So it's, it's there's everything in there that we can supply that will get the foreign body out, pretty much. There's kind of a kind of three steps when you're like, which accessory for my scope? You need to know what scope you've got, um, you know, what the length of that scope is and how big your biopsy channel is. Generally, the longer the scope, the wider the biopsy channel would be as a, a Brexit. So you kind of want to know what length it is, how big the biopsy channel is. And in real layman's term, right, this is my kind of level, what grabby thing you want at the end, like... Are you, are you putting fluid in and taking fluid out? Are you getting a biopsy? Exactly as Chris has said, are you grabbing something that's like material-like? Are you grabbing something that's hard and like a stone? Um, so those are the three things. Like when, when you're kind of going in, it can be quite overwhelming, particularly on a website, because we have a lot of scopes of different sizes and shapes, because we do a wide range of different sizes and shaped animals. You can look on there for an accessory for a, for a forcep and you've got like, eight different options and it can be like whoa which one do I go for but then it's just as I say breaking it down step by step what what is the length of my scope because it needs to be long enough to poke out the end um like what size is it so it's not too wide for the biopsy channel and then which grabby thing on the end uh, that's the way to break down but Chris is always on hand and say we've got our other cat managers Jack and Amy we have some fantastic knowledge in our South End Centre as well so if you are, if anybody's still confused about which one they need, we're more than happy to go through that um, and kind of help you um, work out which bit you need. Amazing. Is there a way to tell from the scopes themselves? Is it written? Is it normally written somewhere on them? We so every scope will have its model number, uh, which is usually found either around the biopsy port or on the control body somewhere. And generally, we can tell you absolutely everything you need to know from that model number because it'll be very very specific in the information, uh, channel size, tube length, diameter, we're everything that we can tell as long as we've got that model number. So when, when we ask certain people what type of scope they have and they say it's the black bendy one, we need a bit more than that. <laughs> a bit like, say, on the ultrasound side, it's like, well, which, you know, which, which standoff do I use? Well, which probe are you using? What, what make, what model? then we can kind of help along. But we're even like, you know, um, there is quite the range of endoscopy equipment, Chris, I'd say out there uh, in the yeah. vet world. It's not always straightforward. Um, we've got a lovely little diagram on the website as well, uh, explaining like, which bits of the scope are which, like, you know, which, which is the, what do we mean by the control body? Where is the biopsy port kind of thing? So as I say, that's always a good start. And then, you know, we can kind of help guide you around. Um, and we also, you know, if, if you really can't find anything on the scope, like take a photo, send it round. Um, in South End, we've got a team of technicians who have got, oh, I think I think we've worked out just under about 200 years worth of experience um, yeah. uh, in, in kind of endoscopy. Um, so we, they've seen a lot. 
So uh, say make, model, and uh, a photo, and fingers crossed we'll be able to get you on the right track. Awesome. That sounds amazing. I always found great people say like 200 years of experience. It just makes me think, does that mean in some time in the 1800s, there is somebody like hammering around with a sort of wooden scope um, somewhere? Like, Interesting you should say that. The history of endoscopy is actually the oldest form of imaging because it's bow back in the Romans is when the first endoscope um, kind of emerged as such, um, or a, a variety of it. So, um, yes. Maybe that's a piece of maybe maybe that's our next blog, the history. We could we could do I think yeah, maybe a different podcast for like sort of endoscopy of ancient times or kind of classical Rome or something like that. Um from there. Okay, cool. So so we've talked a bit about the scopes themselves and sort of the instruments. We've touched on the the kind of viewing, whether it's sort of direct and things from from there as well. Is there any other pieces to the equipment that people need to, to think about? Um, is there something else that the you would be kind of you would need for it, or if you're thinking of getting in, endoscopy, you're sort of you, you've got a bit of information about those things. Is there anything else you need to consider with the systems? The checks that you do on it before you even anaesthetize the animal are very important to check that it's all in good working order. Uh, we would always advise doing kind of a leak test beforehand just to check that there are no kind of leaks going on, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, that's something I think is very important when you're actually using it um, to kind of bear in mind. Chris, would you add anything more to that? Uh, I would say pre-sedation pre would be to, to check that you've got an image uh, and to check that your basic functions are working, like your air water and your angulation. Uh, it's, it's really more about the prep to make sure that your equipment's working before you've got the, the, the animal there on the table. Um, in terms of other bits and bobs that you can use with it, um, you know, some people use suction units to, to draw out any fluids or any air from the patient. There's all sorts of channel accessories. There's monitoring equipment that you can use. It's, it's really with an endoscope, as long as you've got the scope and in modern cases, the processor, you can take it absolutely where you want to go with it, depending on what you want to do and how you want to do it. Okay, by processor, you mean just the, the bit to capture the image? So the, the power unit, effectively, that would give you the, the, the image and the light for the scope. Yeah. Okay, and are those tend to be, do they tend to be all in one kind of things for these now? Is it yeah. just sort of one, yeah. one bit? So the, the modern processor that we supply nowadays that your scope plugs into gives you your light, your image, and your air water functions, as well as recording functions. So it's pretty much an all in one unit. Okay, and is the same for kind of the rigid rigid endoscopy as well? Are the sort of a, the similar rules apply? You have a kind of similar kind of the processor and, and again, the in instruments, is it the same kind of stuff? Very similar, very similar. With, with the rigid side of things, a, a camera is not a necessity. It's easier with one, but the, the, the fundamental basics are you need light and you need to be able to see. So again, with rigid endoscopy, if you wanted to attach cameras and monitors and this, that and the other, you're more than welcome to, but the instrumentation will be very similar as well. Okay, amazing. So I suppose if, if somebody started, they've got the kind of bits of equipment and things and they've gone through their pre-sort pre of checks and getting started, what are you guys' tips for somebody 
um, kind of to, to to kind of to kind of learning about endoscopy. You you mentioned Ronnie and Reggie before. Should people be getting their own um, their own sort of teddies to get stuff out of? <laughs> <laughs> so Ronnie and Reggie, um, they, they they do a lot of tours around the country. They're uh, available at many different. There are kind of courses out there. Uh, we work with some great kind of um, great people who kind of do some courses, which you can come on to. Um, but sometimes even it's something as simple as like we've got some paper mache kind of stomach. Um, you can go quite blue, blue Peter on it. Um, a bit like how we use the kind of the, the kind of the jelly like phantoms in ultrasound with your good old kind of potatoes and, and grapes in there uh, to kind of take your biopsies. Um, so I'm, see- I'm mm. seeing I'm seeing like somebody retrieving like a Thunderbird from Tracy Island. Now. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not far off, not far off. Uh, there is uh, uh, there is a unicorn, a little a little unicorn that we take that, you know, you can go and grasp out of things. But, you know, Thunderbirds in Tracy Island, we can sort that. Um <laughs> So yeah, so you can something as simple as that, literally just a box and getting it, put, putting it through a little of the hole, like trying to grab things out with the different kind of accessories. That's really good. Just be getting used to doing the, the kind of the, the basic movements of the scope when you're in a kind of a safe environment when you haven't got um, things anaesthetized. Um, Chris, the, the team always happy to come out and you know do some how to use and how to get the most out of um, how to use your kind of endoscope from a uh, what we would class as applications, like how to use the, your actual kit. If you want to then go to the next step of getting clinical um, kind of training, uh, there's a there's a wide different variety. Um, we're running some courses later in the year. We work with Nottingham Vet School as well. They run some courses. Um, so there is there are kind of like CPD-based courses out there as well that um, you can kind of go on to uh, get more of the clinical kind of training going on. Okay, amazing. That sounds that sounds great. Um, some great options for for learning a bit more. Um, what do, do you guys have any top tips for people when they're they're using scopes and kind of I, I suppose an equine or small animal or both? Um, that you kind of that you like people you'd maybe like people to know. Um, sort of things in their kind of approach or the or the way that they they kind of get the scopes going. Um, is there anything that other than they've done the pre checklist, I suppose, but anything else? I would. Uh, it's confidence. It's user confidence. I'd say. I'd say, you know, don't be scared of the the instrument. Be careful with it, but it's it's there to do a job for you. And just really take your time. Is is the best thing to do. Is, is is not rush. If you if you start rushing and panicking and things aren't going your way, then it's it's not the best way to work. But I'd just say, getting confidence about using the equipment is probably the most important thing. Okay, I mean, I think that that uh, it's like a lot of the equipment. It's just it's just getting in and using it, and the more you get it out, and and the more you kind of learn about it, and then the easier it becomes, really, as well. Um, which is which is great. Um, good. Ed, uh, then I suppose after so after people we touched on kind of um the kind of cleaning it properly and things as well, and and getting that kind of information. Have you got any kind of t- Top tips for aftercare, I suppose, people using the equipment. Uh, cleaning practice is is good practice. We've got a lot of guides on the website that you can that you can download and use. Um, we're always happy to come out and help with that side of things if you're not sure. But I, personally, uh, a, a good cleaning protocol is is kind of crucial to to your endoscopy equipment. And it starts, though they 
probably won't like thank me for saying this, but it normally starts with a vet's post procedure. That's when you should start your cleaning. So the vets are out there that think that they've done their magical bit with the animal and, and, and pass the scopes to the nurses. They 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 need to do their bit as well. So what what should they be doing then? What 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 a gold a gold star pupil going to be doing? So post procedure, or as soon as the endoscope is out of the patient, we'd say that you should flush your air water channel and your suction channel just to get a nice clean. Uh, flow of water through the channels and wipe the insertion tube down that's straight away um, the idea of that is that we, we don't really want any patient matter drying on the scope so that's gold star vet surgeon practices straight away to to spend 30 seconds just doing a pre-clean of their scope and then it gets handed over to the most magical kind of team of, of nurses who then can go and do the more kind of thorough um, kind of cleaning of it um, but it really is, it's a bit like anything, isn't it? As soon as you, wipe, if you spill something, if you wipe it up straight away, it comes up really, it comes up really easy. If you let it dry there, um, you know, that's going to take more effort. And obviously when you're dealing with very kind of tiny little tubes, um, that is, uh, when things get dried on in, in the middle of that tiny tube, uh, you know, it's, it gets much more difficult to kind of clean afterwards. Um, so yes, gold, gold, gold stars for for vets who are doing fantastic work. But just at the end, that thirty seconds is magical, and then to go into the vet the vet nurse team um, to then kind of do the more thorough cleaning. Um, yes, that that's going to be the best put you in the best position possible to um, keep yeah. that endoscope going. Life skills, isn't it? Never leave your pan of porridge to to clean up later. <laughs> You've got to do it straight away. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely amazing and with all these things like diagnostic imaging technology it it changes it changes so much so we see it a lot and um, with kind of rapid changes in in um, ultrasound and in ct and x-ray and mri as well i suspect endoscopy is not really much different so if you're somebody who maybe got equipment let's see sort of five ten years ago what what's kind of new or what's kind of coming up is going is changing the kind of the, the kind of hardware probably in that time period it's the, the fibroscopes are already that technology had already kind of moved on kind of on that five ten year kind of kind of mark um i'd say one of the things that I, i've seen which i think is very exciting is this wirelessly sending to monitors within your consult room so you can you know that that wireless wireless technology it's just enabling more people to be involved with it to get a greater understanding of what's going on um i think that technology is uh, very neat um and also then um kind of in, going into the wider your imaging uh department as such um sharing those images once you've got it you know we've got a lot more kind of virtual kind of um consulting with you know within the profession as well um, and so kind of sharing what are, used to be like very big bulky files quite easily um, uh, across the country and globe. Um, they're, they're kind of two areas I think that have definitely kind of developed a lot um, in recent years. Yeah, amazing. So I suppose with the, the file capture, it'll be a bit like other um, imaging modalities. It's still be important for people to keep these these findings documented in the same way, really, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we've all been very, very kind of, um, uh, we've always, like, x-ray, you'd never dream of getting rid of an x-ray or, you know, uh, you know, losing an x-ray um, of a patient because it's part of your patient history. 
Um, obviously, that's much more um, normal uh, now with ultrasound. But I'd say with endoscopy, that's still an area that needs, you know, it is it, all of these images, they all make up that patient history. And obviously, we have an obligation to make sure that, that for that patient's lifetime, there is always access to that information. Um, and yes, the importance of it. Um, so we, we've talked quite a lot about the small animal um, side of this, but when when we're applying an, um, endoscopy to the equine population, are there any uh, particular considerations that um, that people should be having? Well, one of the things that you know still strikes fear in, even though it has been a few years since I've been in practice, is is hearing that crunch. I suppose if you're kind of putting a scope in, um, uh, our technicians are incredible. They are incredible. However. If you do hear that crunch, there's sadly not a lot you can do. So um, trying to do as best you can to kind of avoid that sound um, is simple things um, like, you know, working with whoever's passing the scope. You know, imaging is not a boy racer. We wouldn't we wouldn't don't race around with an ultrasound probe, like trying to get the scan in under 30 seconds. Um, the same with endoscopy. Take your time. Take it slow. Make sure you're in the right kind of meatus. Get up to the back. Um, at look where you're going uh, and that helps you can some people do like to have a technique where you, you put the scope in up through a kind of a um, a, a ng tube a nasogastric tube um, that is another way um, and just making sure that the, you know the horse is appropriately appropriately restrained so you know these things happen uh, can often happen when you are in the less than ideal circumstances so just trying to minimize risk um obviously it's never going to be zero risk but doing some of those things can help um chris any other kind of tips from the equine side from your point of view i mean the the, the stomach tubing is quite popular that there, there are people out there that gag the horse um people out there that gag the horse all of the time without fail so we mentioned we mentioned earlier, Hannah, when we were talking about the endoscopes, is the the differences in the way some of the scopes move. If you're kind of approaching endoscopy, what do people need to to know about that? Is there specific uses for ones that move in different directions, um, or, and and how do people know how they kind of move with the flexible endoscopes when they're using the controls? Yeah, so the ridges don't normally move at all. Uh, what you see is what you get. Uh, with the flexibles, um, generally it's the it's the wider scopes that can move in two different directions. Um, the reason being is essentially because the tinier scopes you can't actually fit enough; of, they're too skinny to be able to put in all the mechanics that need to work both ways. It, it, so the, the narrower of the scopes, what we what we would call a, the the thin diameter scopes, that would be used for going into nose and ears and, and very very small animals. As Hannah said, you'll only find you've got a two way tip deflection, so they'll bend up and they'll bend down because that's as much as we can fit inside them. The larger the scope, um, you'll be using for sort of GI work. Then you'll have four way angulation of up, down, left, and right because you need that tip deflection to have a look around the stomach but absolutely as hannah says the larger the scope the more you can fit in without yeah without kind of 
well adding more kind of functionality to it i suppose yeah the um yeah. one thing is to be when you're coming when you're going in there and you're having a little look around just one thing to bear in mind is when you're coming back out you want that scope to be nice and straight uh, you don't want to be causing any damage by having it kind of like hooked around and kind of pulling back in or anything like that one of the ways you can um do that was when you're when you've got the the kind of the control mechanism uh, that there'll be an L and a U if it's a two way kind of um, mechanism and you want that um, Lou that Lulu kind of at about kind of ten to the hour um, and they should be in line with one another. But again, that's something we can kind of go through in kind of training and that side of things. But that just makes you aware that you know when you're kind of retracting it it's nice in a straight line it's going to come out nice and smoothly not doing any damage to neither the patient nor to the um the scope itself so that's kind of quite quite important things when you're kind of looking um yeah i suppose i suppose that it kind of brings it back to that kind of having a look at the the scope and getting familiar with the equipment because you can see where the controls sit and kind of how those movement work so having it go just outside the patient will help because then you might know just sort of where those positions are and kind of where these ports are as well yeah and it's like anything like once once you're happy even with basics of how to hold the scope like comfortably like how you're going to move those kind of dials if you get used to that outside the patient when you're just kind of at one with the equipment when you're in there and say in the stomach you want to make sure whenever you, whatever you're looking at particularly something that you look around everywhere and it can get quite disorientating when you're putting a scope into something like a stomach because you know it generally follows the wall around you, 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 you and you don't want to sometimes even like just with how the scope ends up kind of being into is in the stomach you can be like introducing more scope but it actually feels like you're going backwards sometimes these are some of the kind of the weird things that kind of go on but when you're trying to get your head around that when you're in the patient when you're generally looking to see if is something there is something not you can just make your life easier by the fact that by that point you're happy with the controls and you're happy with where you're moving it and it can help you move around um so yeah definitely worth becoming at one with the um, equipment so then you can really concentrate on the job in hand and what you're trying to do for that patient amazing and um we mentioned the kind of the difference in the the diameters having that effect on the um the the kind of the just the amount of stuff that you can fit in there to move it is there other kind of effects by just that sort of reduction in diameter does that have any other effects on the sort of scopes themselves and maybe in terms of like image quality and things is it is it sort of is it necessarily worse than smaller ones because you can't fit as much imaging sort of um, equipment or fibers into it i'd say not necessarily no with the with the modern hd systems now you, you'll get regardless of the size of the scope you're going to get a good quality image uh just the, the smaller stuff is is the procedures will be a lot more niche to what you can and can't do with that particular scope because of the diameters but i'd say image wise no there's there's not a lot of difference uh you could still perform the same types of procedures just on a smaller scope with a smaller animal with the kind of within the connect side taking the equipment out into the field i mean how portable is this this stuff i mean i always have this image in small animals of like a kind of massive stack of kind of light i don't know for some reason some reason i'm now thinking of like a computer server or something like that which is obviously not right and um, but it's like uh, this sort of how how um, portable can it be for kind of getting out in the field 
it's becoming much more portable. Everything, everything's getting smaller, lighter, you know, more compact. Um, so now you can, we have, we have something called a flight case that a lot of ambulatory um, equine vets use. So it's essentially um, a, a kind of a box on, on wheels um, and you have your light source in there and your processor. And then you can either have it with, coupled with a laptop or a monitor, depends on what you're going to use it for. And then you have your scope bag alongside um, and you can connect it all up and be kind of relatively kind of mobile with it. Um, again, um, as the technology is developing, even that, even what we would class as compact now uh, is getting more and more compact. So uh, again, uh, getting lighter um, and, and physically smaller. Uh, so yes, no, you can, we kind of refer to it as, as kind of like the, the towers in small animal, like a nice kind of shelving system where you can nicely have everything out. Um, and if you, you can also, endoscopy can be a route into going into laparoscopy as well. Uh, you have to be careful when you're choosing your processor to future proof yourself. Um, but you can then kind of develop that kit as you, you and your team's skill and knowledge are kind of developing into more the laparoscopy side of things, uh, which is probably another conversation for another day. Um, but you can use that, that kind of same equipment um, uh, to do more um, kind of surgical kind of techniques as well. What What's the smallest scope you can get? Like how, how small can you go? We, on the flexible side, we can do three and a half millimeters in diameter. On the rigid side, we can go down to 2.7 mil in diameter. And actually, you could, on a rigid scope, your otoscopes are kind of a rigid endoscope as well. People often don't necessarily class them as that, but that's what they are as well. Um, so, yes, yeah, so very, very tiny, very tiny. And what about on the, the other sort of flight to go, what's the kind of, I'm not going to see the maximum diameter, but like the, what's the maximum length of the kind of scopes if someone's for sort of equine stuff, what are kind of people using? Three and a half metre long. Okay, wow. Well, I can see why they can get dropped and broken. <laughs> <laughs> so we've, we've got a, a, a bespoke nine metre workbench in the office working on major repairs for the equine scopes. Uh, so yeah, three and a half meters is is plenty to get you into a large horse. Oh. I thought I thought you were about to say you've got a bespoke nine meter scope. <laughs> <laughs> to to look to loan out to like elephants. Doing doing upper airways work on a giraffe. <laughs> guys, guys, the limit, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so yeah, well, that's really interesting. You've got that um, set up for those those kind of repairs, uh, and I mean, it sounds like the, the the repair team are getting stuck into all these different types of equipment. Um, what what kind of so what are the? I suppose we've maybe touched on the most common um, bits of uh, damage and things, but just for people's interests, um, what kind of what sort of happens in the repair process? So we, we get a scope in and it's, it's given a full inspection uh, and it's, it's, it's a fairly standard function check. And really with, with the skilled technicians that we've got, they can do anything from a, a minor leak to a full strip down and rebuild of a scope. Um, there's probably about 3,000 individual components in a scope. Uh, and they can take it down to component level and rebuild it. So it's, it's, they're very good at what they do. They're very skilled technicians, very experienced, and 
basically just give them a, a, a big Lego set with endoscopy written in it, and then that's pretty much what they're doing for the for the most part. But but anything from the smallest repair to the to the most complicated, they'll be they'll be capable. And they're very good with a whole range of scopes as well. Obviously, um, in the same way that our technicians um, in ultrasound and X-ray are trained by our kind of suppliers, it's very important to have really good working relationships with them. Um, our endoscopy technicians can work on a wide variety of scopes out there. Um, so, yeah, they're they're a great they're a great knowledge source, and they're, they're also so eager as well. Like they love they love problem solving. They love working out what's going on. So, whatever's weird and wonderful going on with your scope, we can't um, we might not be able to promise it, but we're definitely able to fix it. But they'll definitely have a look, and they'll definitely be looking at every which way that they could kind of fix that problem. Um, they're a, they're a really a great bunch of, in that respect. All right, so you know who to call if you're having problems building your Lego Death Star. <laughs> absolutely yes uh, amazing well i think i think that's that's been a lot of great information on vesco and it's probably a, a good time to stop so to, to everybody listening um thank you very much for listening to focal point please go back and check out the other episodes we have in our archive you can find it on all the major podcast platforms you can also find it on the um website as well um some shameless self-promotion actually i've done my most recent journal club if you've not seen our journal club the most recent one is on rigid endoscopy and its use in oropharyngeal stick injuries so if you want to learn more about another use of this amazing equipment um please check that out you can find that again on our um on our website or if you're signed up to any of our newsletters you'll hopefully have seen that or our social media we're on facebook and um all the major other platforms as well too but it just leaves me to see goodbye to everybody here from the uh, kind of podcast so first off um uh, chris and hannah thank you very much for joining us that was really interesting um please in your own time you can say goodbye thank you goodbye yeah thank you so much if you have any questions just let us know and um yeah and it's uh i'll let laura say goodbye as well yeah bye bye everyone and um thanks again you guys that was that was um really educational for me and hopefully everyone else who's listening and great. And yeah, and goodbye for me again. Thank you, Hannah and Chris. And yeah, please join us next month for another episode of Focal Point. We'll see you later. Bye.